how grateful you are depends on the size of the gift. Imagine you got back from holiday and your friend who'd been collecting your mail said, there was a bill that needed paying, so I paid it for you. You'd be, oh, that's nice, thank you very much. If it was a $40 phone bill, well, you'd be grateful. If it was a $1,000 car insurance bill, well, you'd be really grateful. But imagine if it was your annual mortgage statement with $500,000 still owing and your friend had paid that. (laughs) Well, you'd be so grateful, wouldn't you? Words alone wouldn't possibly be enough. You'd want to show up with actions, with some sort of grand gesture that was fitting for a gift as big as that. The bigger the gift, the greater the thanks. Today we're thinking about the Christian at work and there'll be lots of practical details about attitudes and actions and words and priorities and we can get lost in the detail and it can become yet another to-do list, another list of laws to keep and we can end up feeling beaten up and guilty as if it's all about what we need to do. So I want to start by reminding us of who we're working for, what he's done for us. God's created us, he's the king over everything, he's chosen us and given us Jesus, he's saved us and made us his children and given us eternal life. It's an incredible gift. It's a gift that deserves the biggest response we can give, a response of everything we have in every part of our lives, including work. And it's interesting that both our Bible passages from Micah and Colossians begin with God. Uh, In Colossians we started reading from chapter 3 verse 22 but if we go back to the start of verse 1 that's where the section really begins and it begins this way. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above not on earthly things, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's who you are. Think about what God's done. Think about who you are. We've been raised to life. We've been given this new identity. And it's only after that, verse 5, we get to respond with all sorts of practical details. Uh, Verse 5, put to death, therefore, as a result of who you are, do something, respond, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. Or verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's who you are, clothe yourselves with compassion, etc. Begin with who you are and respond appropriately. And verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, do the things that promote the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to do them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do the things that promote his name. Do the things that further his cause, that build his kingdom and do them all because you're thankful to God. That's the context in which Uh, those verses that Harry read for us come about slaves and masters and about praying and being wise in how you talk all of which we'll think about later uh, in the context of work 
then there's the Micah 6 passage. So uh, it begins with God as well. So, so maybe you can stick your thumb in uh, Colossians 3 and flip over to Micah or maybe just watch the screen. Uh, Micah 6, the, the, the setting is that God's angry with his people Judah. He, he's brought them back, he's brought them into the promised land but they've disobeyed him. They've turned their back on him. And so at the start of the chapter he's going to bring charges against them. But before he gets to the charges, he's going to remind them of who he is and what he's done for them. So verse 3, God, said, God speaking, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? A- answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and, Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counselled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. God's recounting all the things he's done. He's saved them from Egypt. He's guided them by, by sending them leaders. He's protected them from enemies like Balak and Balaam. They owe him their lives. So verse 5, he calls them to remember. Remember all the things that happened from Shittim to Gilgal so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember Set your mind on what God's done so that you'll know his righteous acts. Now righteous means something more than just morally pure. Uh, Righteous means to act according to your obligations. To act according to what you've agreed that you are going to do or what you've promised that you're going to do. Uh, God had made a covenant with Israel he promised that he would, be their God, his, he would be their God and they would be his people. He promised, because that was true, he was going to rescue them. He promised to lead them and protect them. He promised to forgive their sin and to provide for them. And he's kept his word, 100%. He always acted according to what he promised. In that sense, all of the things that he did were his righteous acts. He acted according to the contract. Well, that's the gift we're to be grateful for. That's the God who's given us such wonderful things. And so the question is, how do you show your gratitude uh, in a way that is fitting, that measures up? What could you possibly offer God? Uh, well, in verses 6 and 7, we, it seems like we're hearing from one of the accused, an Israelite perhaps. What can we offer God? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with, um, with burnt offerings or, or carved a year old? Obviously that's not enough. Will the Lord be pleased with, with thousands of rams, with, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, well, no, that's not even enough. Perhaps the ultimate sacrifice. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Sacrificing his child. Even though God had forbidden it. And yet even that won't satisfy God's demands. It won't measure up. So what is the answer? What does God require? Well, in verse 8, Micah responds. We don't actually have to guess. That's the good news. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When God made a covenant with his people Israel, there were two sides. 
God would do certain things and he would expect certain things of his people. God kept his side. They were his righteous acts. And he expects his people to keep their side as a response. What does he expect? We can summarise it with three statements. Firstly, to act justly. Justice gives people equally. Justice is about a level playing field. There's no advantage in being a professional. You'd even be able to join Gideons if things were just. Uh, There'd be no advantage in being attractive or educated or rich. There'd be no advantage in sexual orientation or language background. Disability wouldn't mean you were cut off. Neither would age or or race or age uh, wouldn't stop you being treated fairly. Act justly, says God. And notice it's action. It's not just think justly or have it as some theoretical construct that people should be treated justly. Act justly. It's not just words and thoughts. Your colours will be seen in acting justly. It's easy to say you'll treat someone a certain way but to actually do it can be a lot trickier, can be a lot more demanding in terms of your time or your money or your emotions. Secondly, God expects us to love mercy. Mercy is the Hebrew word which is normally translated loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. It's hesed. It's a particular word to do with what happens, what God does because he's in a covenant with us. It's being faithful uh, and treating people well and being faithful to them. I think what this is getting at is where God wants a society where people are committed to each other, uh, where we are genuine and consistent and true with people, where honesty and reliability and trustworthiness are valued, where to love mercy. God has shown it to us and he expects us to reflect it, to show the same. We're to love it, We're to value it and encourage it and model it and celebrate it. And as we look back through the history books, we see that time and again it's Christians who have led the way in those two qualities in our societies. In acting justly. In loving mercy. It's been Christians who have been the first to look after and defend the aged, the sick, the handicapped, the poor, the terminally ill, the imprisoned, the foreigner, the children. Christians, because we recognise that they too are made in God's image and that they're valuable. We act justly, we treat them equally, we love mercy, We're committed to their well-being and their flourishing, whether or not they can contribute or reciprocate. Act justly, love mercy. The third response is to walk humbly with your God. I think what God's getting at here is that we're to go through our life with respect to God being humble. Uh, We're to listen to him rather than to our way or the world's way. We're to trust him 
instead of us, ourselves. We're to be guided by him, corrected by him with his priorities. We're his children, he's our God. In other words, to walk humbly before our God means to live out our covenant relationship with him. Humility is the attitude towards God that will then show itself in how we treat others as we act justly and love mercy. It's a response, walking humbly through your life, it's a response for every part of life. But as Micah goes on, we can see God's particularly interested in our work lives. Verses 9 to 12. God's people weren't acting justly or loving mercy or walking humbly before God in the way they did business. Look there from verse 10. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent. Her people are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. You see, God cares about how we work. God cares about shortchanging people. He cares about charging more billable hours than you actually work. He cares about arriving late and leaving early. He cares about being too creative when it comes to describing the benefits of a product you're selling or quoting high for a job because you know there's no competition or quoting too low to get the contract and then you make up the difference with unexpected additions or putting pressure on clients or competitors with heavy-handed bullying tactics. God cares about things like that. God hasn't treated you that way, so don't treat others like that. Respond to God by acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly. They're the religious offerings God is interested in. He wants to see those religious offerings more than he wants to see sacrifices or church attendance or donations or prayers. Fulfil your contractual requirements in business because God has fulfilled his towards you. Let your righteous acts reflect God's righteous acts towards you. Well, that's Micah. Uh, Flip back over to Colossians, which your thumb is still in, and we'll spend a few minutes thinking about work in that world, the first century uh, Roman world. In particular, let's have a, a little think about slaves. To address the slaves, it's probably helpful to say a few words about slavery. Slavery in the Roman world was, was quite different from the slavery we normally think of if we think of America in the 17th, 18th century uh, with uh, Negroes. Uh, it's estimated that in the first century Roman world that up to a third of the people in Italy were actually slaves. They worked in households and businesses and shops. They worked as teachers and doctors in mines and on farms. Many of them them actually chose to enter slavery to pay off debts. So there was no going to the bank to get a loan and then you could pay off your debts. You had to go into debt. You had to sell yourself to the person who you were indebted to until you worked off your debt. So in lots of ways... Slavery in the first century was not that different from working life today. 
And so, so it's people in all of these sorts of working environments who are commanded in verse 22, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eyes are on you to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. You see, God is watching. Even when our masters aren't. And God wants to see consistent service. He wants to see service in everything, in the yucky parts of the job as well as the enjoyable parts. In the parts we're not so good at as well as the parts we're good at. He wants to see consistency at the end of the day just as much as at the start of the day. He wants us to be reliable, trustworthy, to keep working even when the boss isn't checking up on you or even if he's gone home early. And he wants us to be sincere, uh, not to be one thing when people are watching and another when no one's watching. Sincerity of heart is about being the same thing inside as you are outside. You see, motivation is important. The reason you work hard is not to win the boss's favour or for a promotion or a pay rise. You're to do it, to work hard with reverence to the Lord. You're to do it in response to him and the gifts he's given you. That's if you're a worker for someone else or a slave. It's the same motivation if you're a boss. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Masters, bosses, you value God's fair treatment of you and you are to reflect that in treating those under you fairly. It's a big response but we serve a big God. He wants everything. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Home, work, paid, unpaid, little things, big things. The things nobody notices, the things that get you noticed. Everything. Work at it with all your heart. Uh, with all your heart is more literally translated, work at it from your soul. Uh, which I think has the idea of being internally motivated in your work rather than externally motivated. Don't be motivated by competition or performance review or fear of missing out or retrenchment. Work hard in reverence for the Lord from the inside because you've been raised with Christ. You have a new heart, a new spirit, a new purpose, a new master. You may get a wage at the end of the week, that is a good reason to keep working, but there's a far greater reward that's coming. There's a far better remuneration. Verse 24, work at it with everything since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward the Lord Christ you're serving. The wages you get for being a Christian are not great, let's be honest, but they say the retirement benefits are out of this world. Our future inheritance, we began the chapter that way, didn't we? 
You've been raised with Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's our future inheritance. That's what we're working for and towards and to be ready for. Verse 25 adds another motivation for working hard and consistently now. Yes, we have a reward, but there's also judgement. Both are certain. Verse 25 says, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favouritism. So how does that work? How does the coming judgement motivate us uh, in our attitudes at work? Well, I think it works in two ways. Uh, The coming judgement encourages the slave to please God because God will hold him accountable for his actions. You'll have to give an account, so work hard. But if we turn it around, knowing that everyone will be judged helps us deal with injustices at work. It helps us to trust that the unjust oppressor will also receive judgement. We can rest in God's justice. Romans 12.19 says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's a temptation for the Christian worker to to, uh, behave dishonestly or to, to not work as hard as he might because he's being treated badly by the boss or the work conditions are not up to what they should be and so therefore you can get a little back by taking a bit extra home or not working as hard as you could. We're tempted to think that way. But no, this verse is saying work honestly because ultimately you're working for God and he will take revenge. He will bring justice. Now it doesn't mean the Christian shouldn't seek equity and fairness. Uh, It shouldn't mean that the, the female partner in a firm shouldn't seek to get greater equality and representation there. Uh, It shouldn't mean that if you're being underpaid or your workers are being underpaid that you shouldn't try to redress that. Do that. It's just that we're not to take personal revenge. We're to use the right means for seeking justice. And I think what it's saying is, well, you may get equity, you may get justice, but also you may not. And if you don't, uh, you can leave the ultimate justice to God. You can be comforted in that because it's God who will audit every set of accounts in the end. And that gives us comfort and hope and it motivates us to to keep working honestly and to keep acting justly. (coughs) Well, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, in some ways it seems like we're moving on to a different topic. But I reckon though it's still pretty relevant to the area of work Think about these verses in the context of work. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, aren't they great attitudes to take to work? Devoted to prayer. Seek God's guidance and strength at each point in your day. That's really what walking humbly before your God looks like, isn't it? And be watchful and thankful. Be watchful for opportunities to show justice and mercy. Be watchful for how God might be leading you 
and be thankful to him. Be thankful for everything that he's already given you and continues to give you. I think if more of us took those attitudes to work, we'd be a lot happier. We'd be a lot more satisfied in our work. Well, verses 3 and 4, Paul wants prayer for his work as well. He's he's praying that God would open a door for his message. And verse 4, that he'd be clear when he speaks. And that's a great prayer for us too, isn't it, at work? That we might have open doors and that we might speak clearly. Then in verse 5, we're to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders. It's literally that we would walk in wisdom. That as we go to work, there might be a whole series of wise decisions as we go through the day. Uh, Wisdom in our conversations, in our priorities, in our tasks, in our efficiencies, as we deal with colleagues and supervisors, those under us, as we deal with clients and customers, that we might walk in wisdom. And in particular, that we might be wise in the way we use our time. This is a great word, uh, a great verse for those interested in time efficiencies in, uh, in business. Make the most of every opportunity. In particular, verse 6 zooms in on conversations, the opportunities that conversations bring. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Work really is a great opportunity to meet people, to talk to people. If you think about it, you spend more time with your work colleagues than you do with your own family, which is a bit depressing really, I suppose. Uh, But there's so many more opportunities to speak. Conversations that can be an open door for the message of Jesus or it can close doors and harden people, depending on the wisdom and the grace that you bring to the conversation. Our words need to be full of grace. Uh, When you have to work with someone 40, 50, 60 hours a week, there's no point winning an argument on Monday, but being such a bully about it, that Tuesday to Friday they won't speak to you. Much better to be gracious, to lose the argument and yet still have the opportunity to talk tomorrow. But that doesn't mean we should just agree with everybody and just be a a willow that blows in the wind. Uh, To make the most of opportunities, we need to speak the truth in love. We're to say something that's full of salt. Uh, Full of salt has the idea of being different and flavoursome and interesting. To add something to the conversation. And I think if we're walking in wisdom and if we're gracious, which means we listen to people and we add value with our words, then we'll actually say something that's helpful. Uh, Verse 6 says that we might be able to say something helpful to each one. It says everyone there, but uh, it's actually got the idea of each individual one. Everybody's different. There's no one right answer for everybody. Uh, What's wise for one person won't suit another person. And so we need to be devoted to prayer, we need to be watchful, because it's God who gives those opportunities and gives answers. It's God we're working for, we're working in response to him and his gracious gifts to us and we're doing it all in the name of Jesus so that his kingdom will grow and for his glory.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this uh, it's a big topic. It's one that perhaps leaves us slightly uh, nervous about the week ahead. There's so many ways we can uh, take a false step and uh, disappoint you. But Lord, we want to begin to respond to your incredible gifts in a way which measures up. We want to do everything for the sake of the name of Jesus and that for his kingdom. And we pray that you might honour yourself and help us to do this. In Jesus' name. Amen.